Welcome back to the second series of Unlocking the SDGs, a blueprint to the future. In this podcast, we explore the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and what they mean for society. I'm Professor Preeti Parikh, Professor of Infrastructure Engineering and International Development at UCL's Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction. And I'm Professor Monica Lackenpool, Professor of Integrated Community Child Health in the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute for Child Health. The implementation of the SDGs is a global priority, as we know. But in a world that at times is filled with civil unrest, natural disasters and economic pressures, how responsive are the SDGs? Today, we'll be unpacking how well the SDGs respond to world issues and whether they need to be more agile to the complex issues of the world and the people within it. This episode was recorded in autumn 2023. Our guests today are Dr. Simon Chinier, lecturer at the UCL Department of Political Sciences, and Dr. Louis Achari, co-director at the UCL Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction, Center for Gender and Disaster. We are in 2023, so we are seven years away from aiming to meet all the targets for the Sustainable Development Goals. In 2020, the UN released a social progress index saying that based on current trends, the global goals would not likely to be met until 2082, having been delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic. However, following the world's response, many have hoped that the goals can be achieved sooner than 2082. Dr. Chinyev, what are your thoughts on the world's current response to the goals? Thank you, Priti. Well, first, I think it's a shame that governments seem not to have learned the lessons that we, we could have learned during the pandemic. We could have changed the way we look at the economy. We could have acted better on climate change. And we could have really looked at those shared interests and goals that these SDGs are supposed to do. But unfortunately, when we had the opportunity to build back better, everyone started rushing back to, uh, to be back to normal. And I get it. So was I. I was alone for months, right? And in fact, we see that emissions are actually rising and the divides between the rich and poor within countries are increasing and the divide between global north-south countries are also increasing. So I agree that if we look at the current trends, we are behind on achieving the SDGs in a timely manner. So if I could take a moment to take a couple of the SDGs here. The first one is no poverty. It sounds like that's a no-brainer. No poverty, right? Eradicating poverty, it's a matter of human rights. It is key to any talk around looking at sustainability. Tackling this could unlock enormous potential, which I'd like to go into in a bit, uh, in our populations. But still, nearly half of the world's populations live in poverty, and the lack of food and clean water are actually killing thousands of people every single day. However, there is lots of good work being done out there by governments, by communities, by NGOs in tackling poverty, but the global status quo hasn't shifted very much. With the massive exception of China, we are really behind on this goal. The second is something I'll go into about affordable and clean energy, something that's kind of dear to my heart. Uh, again, there's a lot of good work being done on this sector. We have more options for clean energy now than ever before. They are cheaper than ever before. Green hydro, solar, wind. So why are fossil fuels still so dominant? We here at UCL, we are cutting edge work being done on this sector, looking at what clean energies can be used. 
I am currently myself working on a project looking at decarbonizing the maritime sector in Eastern and Southern Africa. And we're doing this through harnessing the potential of green energies, building on those on-the-ground capacities in our partner countries. That includes high ministerial levels, working with the Minister for Mining and Maritime Affairs for Kenya, for example, looking at the technical levels, both at UCL and on the ground to see what technologies can be used to green, say, ports, for example. And then looking at local expertise in constructing and then implementing an action plan on decarbonizing the sector. What we see is the massive amount of potential, but that's not currently being used in this particular sector. So that's what like, we'd like to see. This needs to happen at a greater, wider scale in all sectors, uh, in other countries, with companies, uh, to push for affordable, clean energy. That means we can share knowledge and know-how, share cutting-edge technologies, and place a much bigger value on pushing for the use of these green energies. But achieving the 17 SDGs of the Agenda 2030, we know will require a collective effort from not just one sector, but from all sectors of society. However, in 2023 alone, we've heard already about so many different world disasters. We've had numerous world crises from the fires in Greece, the floods in Libya to earthquakes in Morocco. And while less acute, many countries have faced economic pressures. We just mentioned poverty. Notably, we have had the cost of living crisis and here in, in the UK, we are suffering from that ourselves. So, Louisa, I just wondered, do you think disasters like these set countries back in achieving the goals, making them less of a priority for the country? I guess the first part of the answer is, what is a disaster and what gets to be considered as, as a disaster? And many of those events that we call natural disaster are not entirely natural. So obviously a, a flood is a result of a natural process, but it depends on what structures you have in place before, during, and after. And that determines how big this is going to be a disaster for the population that is there. So we know a flood doesn't have the same effect in Japan than it has in Haiti, for instance. So this part is not natural. So, th so that's one thing. We can't disconnect the development discussion from the disaster response and prevention. And a lot of those disasters could have been avoided or, or handled differently. The pandemics is an example. I don't know if it gets considered or labeled as a disaster, but it has been a massive social and economic disaster beyond the health issue. And different countries have had different responses. And well, Brazil hasn't had a good response at all. And that led to really complicated economic situation we're still in today. The other thing is a lot of those disasters or events happen almost on a daily basis. Uh, someone was mentioning poverty. Poverty is a day-to-day -day disaster people are, are living with. So we, we need to go beyond this kind of emergency talk and, and we can't use that as a reason not, not to take action or not to do things in a more sustainable way. For instance, in Brazil, we've had this year, we have dramatic episodes of floods uh, last year as well. We have co constant deforestation and fires in the Amazon, which are mostly uh, human-made. They're not natural fire and deforestation. Uh, there's a lot of epidemics uh, beyond COVID-19 who have mosquito uh, epidemics, etc. So those are things that any government should be concerned with at all time. It does set countries back into achieving those goals, but it's kind of a constant issue. I guess it's a constant concern and po poverty is a constant concern. Gender equality is a constant concern. Yes, when there is an, a disaster event, it does set us back, but those issues are here before. And to focus on the SDG, I work on, which is decent work, and which is intrinsically linked to gender uh, and racial equality. 
those are issues that were there before. So for instance, uh, in the informal sector, the pandemic has caused massive unemployment, which has basically left a lot of like, millions of people in situation of hunger. Uh, so yes, it is because of the pandemic, but the reason that we have so many people in informal work is is there before it was there before the pandemic and is still there. We haven't resolved informality and we hasn't we haven't resolved gender inequality. We haven't resolved racial inequality. So those issues are there all the time for us to think about. I think that's really important. Sometimes we do just talk about the emergencies and maybe media portray them in that way, and that's how we then think about them. We tend to see things in the media and then we forget that actually there's a background of disasters happening. As, as you say, gender equality is something we have to think about, racial equality, but we are very responsive because of the way we, well, particularly a lot of people in the public will see it as instances rather than as a constant challenge for us all to work together to try and address. While UCL's academics and researchers are playing a leading role in responding to the challenges set out by the goals, our students are also helping to achieve the SDGs. We spoke to some of our students to get their thoughts on the SDGs and how they're being addressed around the world. Today, we are asking the question, if there was an 18th goal, what should it be and why? I'm Nazulia Fajirinigru and I'm studying at UCL's Bartlett School of Environment, Energy and Resources. If there was an SDG number 18, it should be clean air. Although countries are racing to achieve net zero emissions globally, we must also recognize the urgency of local air pollution. Over 8 million people die every year because of it. Yet, it is only stated implicitly. Therefore, it's necessary to emphasize the importance of pristine, breathable air for the survival of humanity. Hi, I'm Abigail Hunt, and I'm currently studying politics and international relations in UCL's Department of Political Science. If there was an 18th goal, I think I would really, really want it to focus on rural individuals and rural communities and looking at how women operate in those communities as well as other different people upholding different identities. Simon, I'm going to turn to you as a political scientist now. Do you think it's the role of the SDGs to respond to national priorities, whether they are political or through necessity? To respond first to what you were just discussing, and I think that's really interesting about this idea that we respond. As humans, we, we, we can, and we're actually quite good at responding to these natural disasters or these events. Like, and I love the idea that you brought up Libya, for example, and that whole idea. Was that a national natural disaster or was it completely predictable? Because that's the question, a lot of the questions that maybe help answer your question here on should the SDGs be included in national priorities is that we, we should be better at being able to predict and be more resilient. And we keep talking about this word resilient, but we still wait till the disaster happens. And all of the examples, Monica, you just gave. And, and uh, Louisa, you said, are examples of this, that we are responding to these things. So pretty to your question, if I could frame it slightly differently, every country will have different national priorities, obviously, and their approaches to them. If governments took the SDGs into account while creating policy, then I guess that could speed up action. The SDGs, they're meant to be a blueprint to achieve better and more sustainable future for all, but countries need to figure out their own priorities within these 17 calls for action. For example, on fossil fuels, a, a country's response or priorities or policy, if you are Denmark or if you're Tanzania, are going to be wildly different. 
if you are a Pacific small island state, then action is urgent because they tend to have small economies, uh, small territories, um, and small populations. They need the richer, the larger emitters, including Brazil, but also including the US, the EU countries. We need those two uh, emitters to prioritize mitigating climate change as they, as small island states, have simply nothing to mitigate themselves. But they are the ones at the front line, right? They're the ones, some of whom could potentially disappear within a generation as predicted, for example, Kiribati. I'm originally from Canada. Now, I'm probably never going to ever move back there. But the idea that where I came from wouldn't exist in 20 years just blows my mind. Like that doesn't, it doesn't equate for me. I can't, I can't wrap my head around this. So sitting here in the UK, the priorities to both tackling poverty and hunger that we've been talking about, as well as action on climate change, need to be ramped up so that we can do what the SDGs were supposed to do, and that's make us all act like a global community that we were supposed to be. I really like the point you're making, Simon, about mainstreaming the SDGs as part of planning process. And yes, different nations will have different priorities and goals and timelines, but if SDGs really forms the blueprint... Uh, for policy, it could be transformational. And I also like the link that you're making between SDGs and resilience. And Louisa, just back to you for a moment as well. I know that you're an expert in Brazil. So we've mentioned Brazil a few times, but you haven't actually told our audiences that why we're talking about Brazil, because you are an expert in, in working in Brazil. And that's very close to my heart because we've done some work, Priti, and I've done some work in Brazil. And I'm also continuing to do some work working with children in insecure accommodation and in the favelas as well. So it's great to be speaking to you about Brazil as a country, because I think some people don't always understand the politics behind Brazil or how the SDGs have been implemented and what Brazil have been doing to try and address these. So you've really worked on the LUS report, and apologies if I haven't said that correctly, um, but it's the LUS report initiative. And I've just been learning a little bit about that myself. But I wondered if you could really talk to the audiences about um, what this report and initiative looks at um, from Brazilian perspective. So the uh, LUS report, it's, uh, it's been translated into Spotlight Report. So the idea is to shed a light on uh, the goals. And it's a, a quite impressive initiative from the civil society. I've been collaborating for three years now, but it was there before. And so we have working groups by, by SDG. So my specific working group is Descent Work, SDG 8. And we meet every year uh, around the month of April and we start gathering data for each of the SDG and each of the indicators. And we collect any data we can find to show whether the country has uh, progressed, declined or maintained stable uh, in relation to the indicators. And it's been coordinated by civil society, universities, uh, a lot of different experts coming together, uh, a lot of grassroots organizations as well. For instance, there's uh, people working on forced child labor, uh, domestic work. It's quite impressive. I think it's a quite unique initiative. And yes, I'd say Brazil is important because of the, the size of the country, its, it's economic importance and, and the role it plays on international relations in Latin America, but also like more and more it tends to have a, a global voice and, and a global vision. Um, we talk a lot about the Amazon, for instance, so that, that makes us a quite important actor in, in that debate. Then this report gets put together, uh, designed, uh, translated to English, and the working group, the main working group, gets to present it to the National Congress every year. Uh, then obviously it depends on the political uh, will of the time, <laughs> whether we get listened or not, but at least the data is there and we can see the, the trajectory of the country on each 
of the SDGs and then an overall assessment of how well or bad uh, Brazil is doing. And wondered, without surprise, the four years of Bolsonaro's government, um, Brazil has fared poorly uh, bad in every indicator. And we've had many instances of decline um, of economic development, decline in gender equality, decline in every indicator of decent work went backwards. We are hoping that now we get to a new place <laughs> with a new government. We've talked about, you know, Brazil might be going backwards, but actually from the point of tackling the SDGs, the fact that they have such report and they're willing to actually collect the data and consider the data, I think it's quite an important learning point for us all. To me, that's quite a unique initiative. And as we all know, data is needed to bring about change. So the fact that you can even collect this data, I think quite, is quite phenomenal. And it's great that you are central to that so that we can keep learning from you. So building on that in a little bit more detail, um, in recent years, as you've alluded to, and I've alluded to as well, Brazil has experienced significant political divisions. How would you characterize the country's current position, really, in terms of meeting the goals? And we talked a little bit about that, but I wondered if you could go into that in a little bit more detail. And what do you think the key issues are for the new administration? Yeah, so, well, we've got a new government uh, that was elected at the end of last year that came in place in January this year, so the new Lula, um, Lula's administration. Uh, that's a radical change from four years of, of Bolsonaro. I would say that during the years of Bolsonaro, we experienced all sorts of disasters, <laughs> social, uh, economical, climate-related. We went backwards, some experts say we went backwards uh, maybe 20 or 30 years in terms of development. After the pandemic, we had 30 million people facing hunger, or now we call it food insecurity, but basically people not being able to eat. Uh, that's something that hadn't happened in Brazil for at least 20 or 30 years. So we really felt really hard the impact of having a government like the Bolsonaro's government who wouldn't really care about international commitments or international treaties. So we, we kept doing the report and civil society kept on organizing and doing many things, but under a very unresponsive government, there's only so much you can do, plus cuts in every public expenditure, school remained closed for almost two years during the pandemic. So there was a lot of uh, issues arising from kids not being able to, to go to school. I'd say the new government is obviously much more committed to international goals, the SDGs, but every treaty Brazil had signed or every other commitment Brazil has. The main more urgent issues, I would say, are obviously poverty and social inequalities, which is something Brazil struggled with always, but the, the years of Bolsonaro pandemic really took us back in terms of developments. Poverty and social inequality is number one. The protection of the Amazon and the people who live in the Amazon, so not just from a climate perspective to protect the forest, but also the people who are in there, indigenous people, traditional communities who make their living out of the forest, uh, the rivers, etc. So being able to preserve their culture as well. And well, I would say, of course, gender inequality. We also had some setbacks in that and decent work. And if I can insist a little bit on decent work, we have about 40% of our workforce, which is uh, informal in Brazil. So this is a key issue. Uh, being informal means you have no access to social rights. You have no access to social benefits. You live by the day. So it, it means millions and millions of people are uh, left in a constant state of instability and constantly facing the risk of, pov of poverty. So if we can address decent work, poverty, social inequality, protect the Amazon and redress uh, gender equality. Thank you very much. And it sounds like the future over the next few years is going to be a very, very interesting time for Brazil. And um, we'll be watching together at how things develop and maybe we can come back and actually discuss 
what actually has happened and if they have managed to change to address really some of the items that you've mentioned here today. Simon, some of your research focuses on climate and vulnerable populations. In our conversation, you have mentioned small island states, for example. When discussing the responsiveness of the SDGs, do you think government decision-making has an impact on their citizens' opinion of their government? Given that in many countries, as you know very well, confidence in political leadership is at a low. Can the SDGs potentially be used as a tool to improve trust in democracy and in leadership by improving the lives and prospects of ordinary people and citizens? Government decisions have the greatest impact on both citizens and their opinions when it affects them or impacts them directly. So it's not just a question of incorporating the SDGs into policy. I mean, that's great, but I think it's really important to understand what the root causes of the specific issues facing a community are, and then looking where you can put to have the greatest impacts. And most importantly, have consultation with those that are being impacted, whether to be local farmers, Louisa brought up the indigenous peoples of the Amazonas, uh, government officials as well, those people that work in coal mines. Those are real people with real jobs and real livelihoods that need to be taken into consideration. You can't just rip that away from them and have them say, oh, okay, I'm going to be happy with whatever you want to put in place. If you have them at the table when creating the policy or making decisions, then, then they can become part of the process that will affect them and therefore much more likely to start and be ready and able to both incorporate but also accept the policy, as well as also having a more favorable opinion, frankly, to the decision makers themselves. And that goes to the second part of your question as well. At the UN high level, the SDGs are good at framing these key points that are supposed to bring about sustainable action and improve health and livelihoods of people. And I'm really interested in Louise's work and how you incorporate them into looking at impact on the ground. In my work on climate change and vulnerable populations, it is really quite clear that the most vulnerable in society need actions by their governments. But in the case of climate change in countries such as in sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of my work lies, but also the small island states that I've been talking about, they need other countries to act by reducing their use of fossil fuels. The SDGs are supposed to improve the lives of people, but this can only happen if they themselves see tangible results in protecting their ways of life, for example. Think of herders in South Sudan or northern Kenya that have to move their cattle and change their, uh, their livelihoods because of desertification. Think of that islander whose identity, whose whole identity is threatened by sea level rise and coastal erosion. This also can create jobs. If we are changing the way we are doing things, moving off fossil fuels, what innovation can also improve the lives of people on the ground that can, that can work in these different industries that are being created? And finally, we need to build greater equality within countries, but also globally. This will build people's confidence in both governments and in the UN SDGs themselves. So I loved, Simon, when you talked about, you know, real people, real jobs. And I think that's going to stay with me. And I think that's, that summarizes it very, very well. And we talked a lot about Brazil today, but actually we're all trying to tackle the SDGs. And many, many countries across the world are talking about them, but also facing challenges and achieving them, including the UK itself. So it's fair to say that not all countries are in the same place. I think that's what we're saying when it comes to the SDGs. But Louisa, do you think the SDGs maybe need to be adapted for different countries so that they can address them in different ways um, and they have their own challenges and so that they can reflect the different issues that nations go through? 
Yeah, it's always the difficulty, I think, with trying to have a global action. You always need to somehow blur the differences so we can agree on a common standard. So I would say the SDGs are useful to a certain extent. So so we all have the same sense of direction and what needs to be done. But, but yes, it has to be adapted. And some of the indicators themselves, I think, can also be discussed. So for instance, it, I was you know, talking about the indigenous question in Brazil. I have some colleagues there reflecting on creating new specific indicators around racial equality, preserving uh, indigenous uh, people's lives and, and cultures. The current government that we have created for the first time a ministry of indigenous people's rights. It's the first time we have a minister of women, indigenous women representing. So that are some specific issues. But also, uh, for instance, the decent work, SDG 8, cannot be disconnected from gender and cannot be disconnected from poverty. So within the current indicators as well, we, there's some work to do, I think, to create those links. So when we talk about equality in the labor market, obviously we are going to face gender and racial inequalities as well. So between those different indicators, we need also more nuance and more uh, connection because you, you can't act on one thing and, and not act on the other one at the same time. So yes, we, we need that to be adapted, but I would still think a, a common standard is it's good. It's a way to bring people together. It's a way to discuss ways forward. And then each country and, and maybe each, I don't know, country as big as Brazil or India or China, maybe within the country, you might have also differences depending on the region. Uh, so you can always be more local and more context specific, but I think we still need that common base. It's like with anything, isn't it? It's like you have to have a framework that people understand, but you still need the tailoring within the framework for each country. And Priti and I work a, a, a lot on linkages. And you actually suddenly, when you start looking at the linkages, you actually realise how complex it is, the more you get into the detail, actually. But actually, if you don't link everything up, you can't bring about change. It's too simplified. So we, we have to keep things simple when it's needed and we have to tailor when it's needed. And I like the point you're making about localization and prioritization of the SDGs. And we should exchange notes as uh, Monica and I are advising the South African government on how they can localize and prioritize SDGs using an infrastructure lens uh, for Durban. Thank you both for joining us today. Where can listeners find you online on social media? And I'm going to start with Louisa. I'm afraid I'm not very active on social media, but you can find me on Instagram or LinkedIn uh, with my name, Louisa Chari. And yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter, X or LinkedIn as well under my name, Simon Chinyi. Thank you both for a very lively conversation. You've been listening to Unlocking the SDGs. This episode was presented by me, Professor Monica Lackenpaul. And me, Professor Preeti Parikh. And produced by the UCL SDGs Initiative and edited by Frontier. Our guests today were Dr. Simon Chinyi and Dr. Louisa Achari. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from UCL, subscribe to UCL Minds wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk slash SDG. Join us next time on Unlocking the SDGs. Unlocking the SDGs.